And as we continue working through a series of messages from Philippians, take up your copy of God's Holy Word, if you have it with you, and turn with me now to Philippians chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means, means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. God. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your holy word and we thank you for the hope of the gospel and the glory of the saving knowledge of Christ. Help us now, we pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit, to see and to hear your word with understanding and to desire more and more to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this we ask in his mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. We focused on the exhortation in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord last week. And we never quite made it to the second part of verse 1, where Paul states, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And as we consider this last part of chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 11 that we just read this morning, I would like for us to do so under three propositions. The first proposition is that as Christians, we need to hear the same truths over and over and over again. Repetition is good. It drives the truth deeper into our minds, into our hearts, and out through our lips and fingertips. The second proposition is that truth about God and from God is of ultimate importance It is of such importance that the consequences of that truth far outweigh the importance of even family relations and traditions, so that we might say that truth 
is thicker than blood. And finally, in the third proposition, we need to know that the excellence of the knowledge of Christ surpasses everything and is worth any toll or any cost that it extracts upon our lives. And with that, so then our, our first proposition is repetition is good. There are many perils in this life that threaten to steal the joy of Christians. And so Paul quickly makes a turn in this inspired letter in order to continue shoring up the Philippians. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. The phrase, the same things, could refer back to what Paul originally said to them as we read in Acts 16, or to what he had already written earlier in this letter, or to what immediately follows here in Philippians chapter 3. I think that it is most likely that the reference is to this last option. Paul has already mentioned in this letter the opponents of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 28, who are enemies of grace. These are the false teachers who have already infiltrated the church at Philippi. So now, as Dennis Johnson puts it in his commentary, from the bright motif of joy in the Lord, Paul transitions to a sobering subject. We understand then that this warning about false teachers is a safeguard for the church. And as we all know, a safeguard in the literal understanding is a protection against falling to reduce the likelihood of injury. Our guardrail, for example, is a safeguard. Likewise, Paul understands that he must address the dangers of the teachers who would corrupt the Word of God, or the Philippians will soon be headed for a certain fall into error and sin, and they will, so to speak, be forsaking their joy. If they fail to heed these warnings, the stumbling block of false teaching will trip them up and cause them to fall, and such a stumbling will inevitably bring pain to their lives and harm to their souls and destruction to the church. We live in an age when the ultimate good is seen as full liberty of self-expression. The cult of personality is elevated and celebrated everywhere in our culture. The rise and triumph of the modern self and the attending cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution, to leverage Carl Truman's terms, so relativizes our understanding of truth that discerning right doctrine from false doctrine becomes either impossible or even unimportant. But friends, it is so, so very important. False doctrine was threatening to disconnect the Philippian believers from their source of joy in Jesus Christ, as false teaching always does. Some errant teaching at times may seemingly provide fleeting happiness and comfort but it steals true joy. These false teachers had begun spreading their perverting influence in the church at Philippi. And we need to know without equivocation that wrong teaching always leads to wrong thinking about God, which in turn always leads to wrong living. 
And ultimately, this wrong teaching results in a perversion of the gospel, thereby becoming a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. In repeating himself here, that is to say, in writing the same things, Paul is therefore doing the work of a pastor, doing the work of a pastor to see to it that the Philippians should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, they may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. This labor for Paul in pointing the church to the truth about the gospel over and over again and showing them the excellence of the knowledge of Christ was not wearisome. It was not tiresome. It was not grievous to Paul. It wasn't tedious. But rather it was a joy for him because it was safe for God's people. It was safe for us. And it is safe for us to hear the same truths of the gospel over and over again. Maybe to sing the same psalm twice in one day. And the way Paul does this is by providing both a warning about the dangers they were facing and the motivation that undergirds pursuing truth at all cost. And that warning itself might be summed up with the second proposition, which is truth is thicker than blood. Truth is thicker than blood. So what do I mean when I say truth is thicker than blood? Let's return to the text and reread verses 2 through 6. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has, may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul here gives three back-to-back warnings. Beware, beware, beware. William Hendrickson makes this observation. The three words are, as it were, blows of a gavel, signaling for attention in order that the church of Philippi by giving heed, may be safeguarded about against spiritual and moral loss. And the Greek word translated beware here means to look at, either literally or figuratively. The reference here carries a metaphorical meaning. The Philippians must be on the lookout for these false teachers. They must be discerning and perceive who these Judaizers are. This is a strong, strong word of warning that Paul issues. The idea is they must be on alert for these evil workers because of the dangers that they pose to the believer's souls. In the first warning, the first beware, these false teachers are referred to as dogs. Dogs. Now when he mentions dogs, he doesn't have in mind that cute domesticated house pet, but rather wild scavengers or junkyard dogs, we might call them. These false teachers then are like vicious wild dogs that roam the streets in packs from one garbage dump to the next, devouring what has been thrown away. And in this hunt, they attack innocent people 
and spread disease. These corruptors of truth feed on the trash of false doctrine. They spread the deadly disease of doctrinal error and moral decadence. They were marked by the uncleanness of their own immorality. They were vicious in character, and they were attacking the sheep. They were vile in their motives and filthy in their conduct. It's quite a visual warning, is it not? Paul further refers to the false teachers as evil workers. Evil workers. And this speaks of the evil character as well as their endless labors. They are workers, after all, in spreading this evil. These false teachers are also called the mutilation, which explains what they teach and impose upon others. The covenant sign of circumcision was given in the Old Testament as a sign of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. But now in the, coven- in the new covenant, in Christ, a circumcision remains, but we are the circumcision. We are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which we also were raised with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. This is our circumcision. This is the requirement upon God's people. But these Judaizers were attempting to keep people under the Old Covenant, requiring their followers to be circumcised. Thus, Paul refers to them as the mutilation. These Judaizers were stealing the joy from God's people. They stripped the gladness out of their followers by putting them under the Mosaic Law. In their misplaced zeal, they were undermining the good news. And I think there was a misplaced zeal here. They were adding to the burdens of the people. The requirement of circumcision and other such rules placed heavy demands upon the people. And most destructively, it was causing the people to place their hope and their trust in something other than the grace of Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Such false teachers are still with us today, sadly. They go by different names, but the false doctrine is essentially the same. They teach that human works must be added to faith alone, in Christ alone, in order to receive salvation. They teach that water baptism in a particular church is necessary for salvation. They also teach that abstaining from certain meats or drink is necessary for salvation. They teach that last rites or acquiring indulgences is necessary for salvation. Anyone who adds to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to use the apostles' term, is a dog. Many people today come from such religious backgrounds. Many have come from churches that teach baptismal regeneration or that salvation is in the church rather than in Christ or is earned by works rather than being given by grace. And many who have discovered the wonder of the gospel of Christ crucified for sins continue to carry that same old baggage with them. Perhaps some of you do. Perhaps you wonder why your joy is elusive. Perhaps you wonder why you continually feel guilty and inadequate. Perhaps you wonder why you are still so crushed by your failures and your shortcomings. Or perhaps 
the weight of your past sin still haunts you. Could it be? Could it possibly be because of the ongoing influence of that old manner of teaching that you once sat under and continued to carry around with you? Could it be possible that you need to hear the old, old story again and again? Could it be that you need to fully believe that God in the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins? Or could it be that you are clinging so tightly to to family ties that you are afraid of disappointing your blood relations if you wholeheartedly pursue biblical truth and application in your lives? I know enough stories in the congregation to know for some this is true. This has been a struggle. And as Pastor Lovett has so helpfully taught, the friends and family hermeneutic is a powerful one that has led many astray. Pastors who have led Bible-believing churches and faithfully held to the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture suddenly depart from the truth when a son or daughter comes out as homosexual. Time and time again, seemingly solid Christians lose their grip on right doctrine when a family member or a good friend becomes a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. When you forsake truth to preserve your relationship with your family or the tradition you grew up with or your standing with a circle of friends, it is doing great harm to your spiritual life. It will rob you of the joy that is yours in Christ, joy that your eternity is secure, that His love for you is secure. You need to abandon those burdens. And because the gospel is true, you can abandon those burdens. The truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel is thicker than blood. In Matthew, we read that Christ said, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. And in Luke, do you suppose that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For now, for from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Paul places No confidence in his flesh, in his circumcision, in his identity as a Hebrew of Hebrews, or in his law-keeping and righteousness. No, he is fully and completely sold out for Jesus and embraces the truth of the gospel. And nothing in his family heritage or the influence he once carried as a Pharisee of Pharisees will cause him to compromise the truth of God's word and the glory of Christ. For Paul, truth is far thicker than blood. And so now we turn to the reason, that motivation that frees Paul to throw off the chains of the friends and family hermeneutic, which can be expressed in the third and final proposition, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus surpasses everything. 
In verses 7 through 11 again, Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here seems to put the theological explanation of his conversion in accounting terms. And so we see that on the left side of the ledger, perhaps, so to speak, he lists his assets, representing the profit side. And on the right side, he puts the liabilities, representing what he owed. Paul describes his conversion to Christ as an accountant would look at a profit and loss statement. Paul begins, but what things were gained to me? This is a reference to everything he has previously listed on the asset side of the ledger, representing his life, everything which in which he once trusted to commend himself, including those things that Paul listed just a moment ago, his law-keeping, his self-effort in religion, his upbringing and nationality. All these were things in which he had earlier, prior to his conversion, put his trust, in which he once thought of as gain and would gain him acceptance before God. But they were not gain in the eyes of the Almighty. As John MacArthur observes, all of the cherished treasures in his gain column suddenly became deficits. Thus, this final paragraph we're considering this morning begins with a settled mindset that regards everything as loss in comparison with the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. And here, as we focus on verses 8 through 10, we see three purposes in counting everything as rubbish. First, Paul wants to gain Christ. Second, Paul wants to be found in Christ, which means not having a righteousness based on the law, but rather that which comes through faith in Christ. And third, Paul wants to know Christ, which includes not merely knowing Him as a person, but also experiencing the power of His resurrection and sharing in His sufferings. All of this is necessary if Paul is to attain to the final resurrection from the dead. And so you can see here that Paul shares the story of his conversion transformation to show his readers that his choice to renounce confidence in the flesh is the choice that they too must make in order to know Christ and be conformed to Christ in his humiliation and exaltation. Although Paul's story discloses his personal passion, his story also offers a practical paradigm for the way we are to become like Christ. Those who follow Paul by emptying themselves of all pride in their ethnic origin, national heritage, social class, and religious works will be like Christ, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And so Paul moves from the specific things that he has counted as lost, those described in verses 5 through 7, to a much larger claim that everything, absolutely everything, is counted and placed in the lost column. 
And this shift is important because it excludes nothing. Paul insists that even those things that are good and those things that are beneficial and in and of themselves, ultimately, they all must go into the lost column when it comes to our standing before God. Even the good works that we do can become, if we're not careful in this accounting, deadly ground for the confidence in the flesh rather than an expression of trust in our Christ. The reason for this radical form of spiritual accounting is given in the clause in verse 8, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is this knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord that is of surpassing worth in comparison to all the things that could otherwise be considered gain. As the context makes it clear, this kind of knowledge that Paul writes of here is far more than a mere intellectual grasp of information. When Paul writes the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, he writes of knowing the promised anointed one who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, hope, the dominion and the one who was sent to save his people from their sins and the one who has universal dominion and authority. Paul thinks of Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, and as King, all in one. And with the addition of the personal pronoun, my, my Lord, Paul expresses his own personal commitment to this utterly unique person, to my Lord, the same Christ Jesus who has been given the name above every name and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess is Paul's personal Lord. Thus, Jesus Christ is not merely Lord in some abstract sense, but in a very personal sense. Is Jesus Christ your personal Lord? Is He my Lord to you? Is He your King? Is He your Savior? But Paul is not content to stop there. Beyond losing all things for the sake of Christ, Paul now states, I count them as rubbish. And by rubbish, Paul refers to something that is useless or, or undesirable material that is subject to disposal. As a result, the word has a range of meanings, including garbage and that which most of you are familiar with, dung. In comparison to the greatness of knowing Christ, everything else is rubbish. The very things that are at one time, at one time were the basis of his identity, his significance, and standing before God... Paul now regards as equivalent to that which is flushed away in the sewers. Therefore, we see at the end of verse 8, Paul states the first of these three purposes behind his spiritual calculus of accounting all things rubbish. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ. Paul then moves on to the second purpose of his spiritual bookkeeping in verse 9. He wants to be found in Him. Being found in Christ means not having a righteousness of His own that comes from the law. It is a righteousness that comes from Christ. A righteousness that is experienced through faith in the person and work of Christ. It originates in the very character of God Himself and it is given as a gracious gift. It is an alien righteousness as Martin Luther referred to it. 
While many Christians today know intellectually that their standing before God is based on a righteousness they did not earn, they nevertheless live as if their acceptance before God depends on their obedience. And as a result, one of two things happens. The believer who thinks he is very obedient develops pride in his perceived obedience and as a result becomes self-righteous and judgmental toward other less obedient believers. Others recognize how far short of God's standards they fall, and as a result, they question their standing before God. They wonder if God truly accepts them in light of their sin. And these are two ditches that we can so easily fall into. But the good news of the gospel is that God has given us the very righteousness of His Son. God not only accepts the full payment that Jesus made on the cross for our sins, but He also credits to us the righteousness of His perfect life of obedience. That is good news indeed. And the third reason Paul accounts everything else as rubbish is that he may know Christ in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. By emphasizing his desire to know Christ here, Paul highlights the personal nature of his relationship to Christ. Central to Christianity is this personal, dynamic relationship with the risen Christ. But such personal knowledge must not be pitted against head knowledge, as if the two were mutually exclusive. We would rightly question any man who has no interest in learning more about his wife but claims to prioritize his relationship with her. Biblically speaking, our head knowledge of God fuels, fuels our personal knowledge of Him. By emphasizing the power of Christ's resurrection, Paul highlights the hope for change and growth and holiness that flows out of knowing Christ personally. If the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us, there are no grounds for the Christian that simply cannot change, constantly pointing them away from Christ and toward their sins. This is, the, this is the plot of the evil one. He wants to point you away from Christ and focus, have you focus on your sins. The gospel holds, holds out the power of the resurrection as a sure guarantee that the Christian can be transformed into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by emphasizing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, Paul highlights suffering as the path to growth in the Christian life. God uses suffering for many purposes, but chief among them is to make us more like Christ. True, our sufferings are not redemptive, and they don't save us, for only the sufferings of Jesus pay for sin. But when we follow Christ and suffer because of our identification with Him, we inevitably become more like Him. And the mention of suffering at this point in the letter should not be surprising. As he writes from his imprisonment in Rome, Paul is simply explaining what it means to follow Christ. And a key component of that is suffering. Paul followed a suffering servant whose obedience led to the cross, and, and believers should expect nothing less. But know this. Paul doesn't view his own sufferings as redemptive, but rather as the natural result of being identified with Christ. And Paul articulates a similar line of thought in Romans 8, writing, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Sharing in Christ's sufferings means that we will also one day share in His glory, which awaits Him. Because of His deep partnership with Christ in the suffering of His death, He will also share in the resurrection of Christ at the end of the age. Paul is confident that if by any means, if by any means He may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This statement asserts the certain guarantee of Paul's future resurrection. It states the certain guarantee of your resurrection as you are in Christ. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, and Paul, along with every believer in Him, will be part of the full harvest raised to share in Christ's glory. Jesus taught this truth when He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. And Christ promised His disciples, because I live, you will live also. It is the resurrection of Jesus that gives such a glorious prospect beyond the grave. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus surpasses everything, far exceeding the price exacted upon our worldly comforts, including the fellowship of His sufferings that will surely be our companion in this life. Well, this section is one of the most well-known in this short letter to the Philippians, and it's easy to see why. The call to treasure Christ above all things resonates deeply within the soul of each and every believer. But knowing Christ through faith involves more than just receiving a right standing before God. It means experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, even now as we await the consummation of all things at the last day. In the meantime, what are we to be doing? We press on towards that day by forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting that burden of sin that you have been washed clean of by the Lord Jesus Christ and His precious blood. Trusting in the promise of the gospel. Placing your hope completely in Jesus. And when you sin and when you stumble, you repent and believe afresh the good news of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And so we strain forward to what lies ahead in this life. In conclusion, the surpassing excellence of the knowledge of Christ changes everything. It gives us new and right perspectives. And it changes the affections of our hearts. It imparts a new identity and gives us a new mission. And sometimes it even draws a sharp line between us and our family and friends, creating a division that shows us that what we once thought of as supremely important is, by comparison, mere rubbish, because His truth is truly thicker than blood. Therefore, let us gladly suffer the loss of all things, that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So may the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to lead us all ever more fully and completely and devotedly into the excellence of the knowledge of Him, to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our good and gracious Father, we thank You for the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank You for redeeming us, for saving us, for translating us out of darkness and into Your glorious light, and for the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free from bondage to sin. Oh, that we would know more of Christ and desire more of Christ and walk more faithfully with the Lord. Show us more and more of His excellencies and give us a desire for His holiness and His righteousness and make us willing to embrace with joy the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, that we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.